Hello, friends, and thank you for joining us today at Grace Church. We hope you're enjoying our series through Matthew. Our goal in this series is to treasure Jesus as the pearl beyond price, as some, someone who is more valuable than anything else in this life. And we cling to him in hope and faith and, and trust, knowing that his promises stand true and firm no matter what happens. Uh, so today, before we get into Matthew chapter 8, I just want to open us up in prayer. I invite you to pray with me, and then we'll read the text together, and then we'll dive in into the explanation of the Scripture. So if you will, just pray with me and, uh, and ask God to open up your heart to His Word and to shape you and form you into a greater adoration and d- devotion to Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father God, we silence ourselves before you. God, we thank you for your severe mercy, God, that it is actually a kindness that we have to take this time to slow down, to stop, to be still, to know that you are God. Father, in normal days and our normal life, we tend to have baseball practices and work and meetings and endless tasks and chores and errands, Father, that we rarely get the chances to slow down and enjoy a walk with you. So, God, we thank you that you have given us an opportunity to hear from you, that you have given us your word that stands true. Lord, regardless of what's happening, Lord, pandemic or no pandemic, Father, your promises are true. Your word is firm, Father, and it will not return to you void. And so, Father, we ask that you will shape us that you'll transform us, and that we will adore and love Jesus even more by the end of this time. So now we open up our word, open up your word, asking you to humble us, asking you to help us repent of sin, help us, Father, to find encouragement in you and you alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you will, just open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. We're going to deal with just this very short amount of text. And so uh, we're just going to begin reading, uh, beginning here in verse 18. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? I just want you to imagine your neighbor walking up to you and saying, You know, in this time I've been thinking about becoming a Christian. I think it's Time for me to finally take this step and follow Jesus. Now, more than likely, you're going to be ecstatic if your neighbor were to say that to you. You'd be so happy. And you might even feel some sort of responsibility 
to help encourage them in that pursuit. But how do you do that? How do you encourage someone to follow Jesus? Well, you might tell them how happy you've been since you've chosen to follow Jesus. You might tell them how much better your life has been since you've decided to trust in Him. You might even tell them how blessed they will feel if they trust in Him. But let's just change the scenario a bit. Imagine overhearing the same conversation between your friend, who is a Christian, and her lost neighbor. The neighbor mentions how they are thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus, but instead of giving him reassurance of how easy it is to be a believer or how good it feels, your friend begins to tell him how difficult it will be and how he will have to abandon all hope of a comfortable life, that he'll have to give up his worldly attachments, that he'll have to uh, be willing to to die the death of a thousand deaths every day as he takes up his cross, and how sometimes the Christian life even feels like a crucifixion. Understandably, you might be appalled at your friend's evangelism tactics. You might even think something like, what's she doing? She's going, she's going to chase this guy away. I thought we were to try to win people over to following Jesus. We're supposed to tell them how good it is and how easy it is Why is she telling him how hard it is, how difficult it is to follow Jesus? We don't want to chase this guy away. Well, it might surprise you to find out that that's exactly what Jesus did when would-be disciples came to him. Jesus set his standards for discipleship extremely high. For example, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, the Lord told him to go and sell all that he had and then follow him. This wasn't an easy command, any more than it would be for me or you to have that command from Jesus, to give away all that we have, to sell all that we have, and to follow Him. That's not easy. That's not, that's not an easygoing command at all. It's, that's something that would re- require a lot of personal pain and discomfort, and the separation might actually feel like a death. And all this for a soon-to-be-crucified Messiah. Now, let's just ask if the same young man walked into our church, would we have told him the same thing? Most of us would have been applauding him for even coming in to seek Jesus. We'd have told him, don't worry about it, just come and join and and become a benefactor, tithe. We'd be so excited that this young, rich young ruler would choose to have his name on our roster. What a great opportunity for us to have such a rich, wealthy, influential young man in our church, on our roster uh, and tithing to us and, and, and being a part of our family, don't tell him how hard it will be. Let him think that he can ease his way into the Christian life. Well, my friends, that's part of the problem of the modern church. The problem with the modern church isn't that we've made discipleship too difficult. It's that we've made it too easy. We tend to, tell, we tend to give people this easy believism in that if they'll just simply believe in Jesus, they can essentially remain who they are to begin with, with little or no transformation at all. That they can stay the same person, believe in Jesus, and remain that same person for the rest of their life without having to repent of sin or without having to, uh, uh, to, to destroy idols, without having to completely abandon the things of this world to follow Jesus. But in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, Jesus shows us that true discipleship requires the abandonment of all else for the sake of gaining Christ. 
Can you imagine what would happen if we made that a part of our evangelism or a part of our discipleship where we instill the truth into people that they must be willing to abandon all else in order to follow Jesus? They must leave behind their nets. They must leave behind their ambitions and make Jesus their one and only ambition. But that's what is required of true discipleship. It's to count everything as loss in order to gain Christ. It's to count everything else as trash, as rubbish, in order to gain the, the greater value of Jesus himself. True disciples are those who are willing to endure hardships, hurts, tears, and even death itself for the sake of knowing and enjoying Jesus. Now, I think as we approach Matthew 8, we have to see the stark contrast that Matthew gives us between the leper and the centurion who came to Jesus in the previous section and these two men who come to Jesus in this section, beginning in verse 18. And it shouldn't surprise us that he responds to these two groups of people in two different ways. To those who, like the leper and the centurion, come in complete confidence, in complete faith and hope in him, Jesus applauds their faith, praises their faith, and encourages them. But to those who come like the prideful scribe or this other disciple who has more important things to do, Jesus speaks more firmly and wants them to understand that there's great difficulty in following him. Now, on the one hand, Jesus does not snuff out the smoldering wick of the leper's faith. But on the other hand, he tells these two men that the wet logs of their devotion are not sufficient. So so while he's encouraging a smoldering wick of faith, he is denouncing any kind of devotion that's turned to anything else other than him. I think... By the end of this, we should come to Jesus like the leper did, falling to our knees, knowing we have no other hope. Or like the centurion, knowing that Jesus merely needs to speak a word. And not like the scribe who thinks of Jesus as a teacher, and we've got this, we can follow you, Jesus, we can handle it. And not like the other disciple who's like, well, let me take care of some other things, and then I'll follow you. We should come to Jesus with complete confidence and with complete faith in Him as our Messiah and our Lord. And that's the point of the contrast. Do you come with your backup plans? With other reservations? Do you come with other hopes, other attachments, other comforts? Or do you come to Jesus knowing that there are no other comforts and that you must attach yourself to no one else but Him? That you must cling to nothing else but Jesus alone? When it comes to Jesus, it is all or nothing. We either approach Him with full confidence or we abandon Him like the men that we will see in this passage. True discipleship requires, explicitly in this passage, abandoning three things. Our comforts, our worldly attachments, and our fears. We must be willing as disciples to abandon our comforts, our worldly attachments, and our fears in order to pursue Jesus, who is worthier than all of these things, and to whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. So let's just look at this first one. What does it mean to be a disciple who abandons all other comforts. 
Well, let's read it in verse 18 through 20. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that someone as influential and powerful as a scribe, I mean, these, these were uh, uh, authoritative interpreters of Moses' law in that day. This is the first time someone so influential has decided to follow Jesus. I mean, imagine how great it would be, what kind of affirmation for Jesus' movement it would have been to have a scribe of, of, of all people, to follow him and affirm him as the Messiah to affirm him as an authoritative teacher. But there's some indications that the scribe had not completely understood what, to what exactly he was committing himself. It seems like he spoke a little overconfidently. Uh, he, over, he overestimated his ability to follow Jesus. First, he did not fully understand to whom it was he was speaking. He did not fully understand who it was he was saying he wanted to follow. He calls Jesus teacher. That seems harmless. But in Matthew's gospel, the only people that call Jesus teacher are the Pharisees and the future scribes who reject Jesus and do not understand him to be the promised Davidic son, the Messiah, the king of all. So typically in Matthew's gospel, whenever someone approaches Jesus and says, Teacher, these are people who oppose him and don't fully believe in him and don't accept him to be the promised chosen one that God has spoken of uh, in the Old Testament. Second, it can be implied from Jesus' answer to the man that the man didn't quite understand what it would take, what the cost would be to follow him. Jesus says that while foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus' mission has led him to a life of discomfort. Jesus' mission will be characterized by homelessness, hunger, sorrow, and eventually death. The, the worst kind of death. A crucifixion, torture, made perfect on Golgotha. And his implication is that those who follow him will have to follow him into similar discomforts. The cost of true discipleship has not changed. It has not gotten easier. Following Jesus still requires a disciple to abandon his or her attachment to this life and into a life of comfort and ease. Jesus gave us fair warning in the Sermon on the Mount that the road that leads to life is narrow and it is not easygoing. It is difficult. It is a difficult road to uh, end up at life. And if you think about the Christian life, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to love people as Christ loved us. It's uncomfortable to wash another person's filthy feet. It's uncomfortable to forgive someone the 10,000th time for the way that they've offended us. It's uncomfortable to humble ourselves and to serve others and to treat others as more important than us. It sometimes hurts to give our time our energy, and our resources. It's terrifying sometimes to look death in the face and yet to choose to have faith in Christ. And no one should be so foolish to even dare say that it is easy to take up our cross daily 
and follow Jesus. I mean, this is a daily crucifixion where our ambitions, where our pride, our titles, our reputation daily get nailed to the cross and killed and mortified for the sake of making Jesus known in the world. And yet, that is what is required of true discipleship. My friends, to make disciples does not mean to welcome people into a life of comfort. To be a disciple is not to live in a life of comfort. To be a disciple is to abandon comfort for the sake of having Jesus. As zealous as this scribe was initially, it is likely that he chose not to follow Jesus at all. The irony of it is, however, that in trying to keep all of his comforts, to keep his house or keep his his permanent place, that in keeping his comfort, he completely missed out on an opportunity to have the comforter. And the same thing happens to us. When we choose to cling to our comforts, rather than clinging to the comforter, we end up losing the comforter and maintaining only temporary comforts. We must be willing to give up the comforts in order to follow the true comforter. So I think it's worth asking, what are some of the things you think you cannot live without? Is it your career? Your possessions? Your relaxation? Your safety? Your financial security? Your reputation? What is it that you think you cannot live without? In this time of of quarantine and social distancing, we, we have lost a lot of things, lost a lot, of bil- a lot of the freedoms we used to have. And some of us are even scared about losing our job or taking a hit in the budget or how are we going to pay for that new house that we bought six months ago. And there's some of us that are worried about these things. What's the impact going to be on my child's education? And yet, the call to discipleship It's to take on the fact that Christ is the true comforter and that you do not need to find comfort in any of those things. That comfort, true comfort, can't be found in any of those things. It's only found in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at abandoning our attachments. If Jesus' response to the first would-be disciple seems difficult, just wait till you you hear his response to the second would-be disciple. It's even more difficult. Here's what he says in verse 21 through 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a fair request. Let the man have the funeral for his father, and then he'll come follow you. But this is what Jesus said to him. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. I think this man seems rather noble at an initial glance. He, He wants to bury his father. Now, burial rituals were different back in the day. Um, typically, the, the dead person had to be buried that day, right? So it's the same time. But the mourning festival continued to happen. The grieving happened for many days. And scholars kind of differ on what this man actually means. Does he mean let him bury his father who's now dead? Or does he mean uh, waiting, waiting for a day when his aged father will eventually die, bury him, and then he'll be free to follow Jesus? I don't think it really matters. Either way, the man is saying that he has other obligations that he must see to first before he begins to follow Jesus. In other words, he's wanting to delay his discipleship. Let me take care of this more important thing, and then I will come and catch up with you, Jesus. You go ahead and go on to the other side of the lake, and then after my father dies, whether it's a few days or whether he's already dead or a few years from now, 
I'll come up and catch with you, catch up with you, and then I'll follow you. But I think what Jesus is saying in his answer here shows us that any earthly attachment ultimately falls short of the true value of Christ. The true urgency isn't to bury the man's father. The true urgency is that the man follows Jesus. That is the real urgency of this text. It's not that his father is dead and needs to be buried, or is aging and needs to be buried first. It's that this man desperately needs to follow the Savior now. And when Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their dead, he's referring to those who, like the man, I think, are too spiritually dead to see Jesus as the source of life. They're too overwhelmed by the the obligations they have in this life or the things they want to do first. That's spiritual death in Jesus' eyes. Leave the spiritually dead to bury their dead. Leave the spiritual dead to get through their daily agendas. Leave the spiritual dead to, to achieve their career aspirations before they follow him. Leave the spiritual dead to, to go and get, get wealthy before they follow Jesus. But those who are alive in Christ pursue Jesus as if there's nothing more urgent in the world but to follow him. So rather than trying to soften what Jesus was saying, I think it's better for us to take Jesus at his word. Do you see Jesus and following him as more urgent than anything else you have to do? Do you see following Jesus as priority number one? That doesn't even belong on the, on the list of the other things that you have to do. It's not even a task. It's a lifestyle. Now, I, I know Jesus' words might seem harsh, But it's a testament to who Jesus really is. If Jesus really is God in flesh, who had come to die for humanity and save humanity from their sin, then of course it makes sense that this man should leave all other attachments and follow Jesus. Not later, not a few years from now, but right then. He, this, is, this is the most urgent thing in his life that he could possibly do right now. And as difficult as it may be for us to accept, Jesus' standard of discipleship still requires absolute abandonment of all else to pursue him. The gentle Savior who invites us saying, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is the same Lord who says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is a gentle and loving Savior. And it is because of his gentle, loving salvation that we must be willing to let our grasp go of everything else. Thomas Watson once put it this way. If the hand is full of pebbles, we cannot receive gold. If our hand is clinging on to all these other attachments, and if we're busying ourselves with all these other priorities, then we can't receive the pearl beyond price, the one that's really worth following, the one that has true value and infinite worth greater than anything else that we could possibly have. It's astounding to me that we as Christians can make so many other things more important than pursuing Jesus. 
It, 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 just, just wait till I, I, I get my career going, and then I will focus on, on following Jesus. Just wait till I get married, and, and then I will follow Jesus and trust him. Just wait for me to get financially secure, and then I'll be good to go. I'll be ready to follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus shows, once again, that there is no such thing as delayed discipleship. No such thing as delayed discipleship. True discipleship requires us to do as Peter, Andrew, James, and John did the moment Jesus called them. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what they do? Immediately, they left their nets. They even left their father standing in the boat. And they followed Jesus. So my friends, this is just a moment for you to evaluate your own walk with the Lord. Have you made Jesus and following Jesus a matter of great urgency? Because true discipleship, COVID or no COVID, having to stay at home or being able to have the freedom to go anywhere you want, the fact of the matter is, is we're called to follow Jesus now. So if you're watching this and just thinking, you know, I'll follow Jesus once all this goes away. I'll be committed to Christ once the the virus disappears. No, Jesus calls you to follow him now. Jesus calls you to put down all these other more important responsibilities that you have to follow him and to pursue him as the pearl of great price, to sell all that you have to attain him alone. Third, if true discipleship requires abandoning a life of comfort, abandoning our worldly attachments, it also requires abandoning our fears. Verse 23 says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now at this point, we can stop and applaud these disciples. They have gone further than anyone else has. These other two men flaked out. The moment that the scribe hears that Jesus has no place to, to, to lie his head, the moment he hears that the Messiah is homeless, he's back where he, where he wants to be, pursuing comfort. There's no indication he followed Jesus whatsoever. Uh, Or the other disciple who stayed to bury his father. These disciples have gone above and beyond. They have forsaken comfort. They have forsaken all their previous attachments. And yet, as we see, that is not quite all there is to being a true disciple. It's not just being willing to give up our comforts. It's not just being willing to give up our attachments. We must be willing to give up our fears as well. Here's what it says. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he, sa- and he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? At an initial, at an initial glance, uh, this storm seems like a real emergency, right? This is a real crisis. I've been to the, the Sea of Galilee, and one of, the th- one of the things they said was that storms can come quickly and unexpectedly on the Sea of Galilee. It's at such a low level that winds can come and waves suddenly get high, and next thing you know, there's a sea storm. And little fishing vessels like the one that Jesus and his disciples are in have little chance of making it to the other side in such storms. And so when the disciples woke Jesus, 
you would think that Jesus would jump on and go, oh my gosh, you're right, this is a crisis. This is an emergency. I must see immediately to it. But that's not what Jesus does. Before Jesus ever rebukes the storm, Jesus rebukes their faith or their lack of it. The first words he says are this, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now in this, Jesus shows that the real crisis is their lack of faith, not the storm itself. And this has always been the case for God's people. When Israel was wandering wandering around in the wilderness, the real crisis was not the lack of food and water. The real crisis was their lack of faith in Yahweh who could provide for them. In 2 Kings 18, the real crisis was not that the Assyrians had invaded Judah, but that the people had put their hope in all these other things outside of God, such as their allegiance with the Egyptians or their fortress cities or their vast wealth that they could buy off the Assyrians and keep them from destroying them. God, one by one, knocks down all the things they put their hope in to show them that the real crisis wasn't that the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, but that they didn't trust him as fully as they should. I think it's important for us to make this connection. You know, we've been hearing on the news about pandemics and how much this is a crisis, and people are talking about this is the worst thing that has happened since World War II. People are comparing these days with Spanish flu, and even though that the numbers are way worse during the Spanish flu, people are saying we are in a real epidemic, a real crisis, a real emergency uh, that we have never before experienced in our generation. That may be true to some extent, but I would argue that the real crisis, the more severe crisis in all of this is that God's people tend to trust in other things other than Him. My friends, whatever we may go through, cancers, pandemics, coronavirus, pneumonia, tragedies, bankruptcies, economic depressions. Let's just suppose that COVID leads to the worst economic depression that we have ever seen, supposedly even worse than the 1920s depression. What if it it leads to a lot of job losses and it leads to us losing our job? What if it leads to persecution? My friends, the real crisis in that is none of those things. The real crisis is not the pandemic. The real crisis is not the state of the economy. The real crisis is not who's going to be elected in November. The real crisis is how God's people trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. The real crisis is that we make our faith in Christ, even in the darkest moments of hardship and suffering, the most important thing in our lives. That before we stock our pantries, before we try to secure our jobs, before we seek economic security, we seek to grow in faith and adoration of Jesus. I think it's worth asking at this point, how did these disciples have little faith? I mean, I tend to sympathize with the disciples here. They did what uh, a few others did. They got into the boat. I hope I would have had the strength to get into the boat with Jesus and say no to comfort and no to attachments, even uh, the, the, uh, the chance to bury my father. I hope I would have the ability to do this, but to do that. But at the same time, I'm not so sure I would have been the great supreme disciple who would have trusted Jesus in the boat. I mean, come on, the waves are crashing over the boat and threatening to sink it. So, so why was their fear 
actually a lack of faith. It just seems like common sense. Was Jesus being too harsh with these disciples? But I think if we look carefully at their fear, I think we get a very clear and resounding no. He was not being too harsh. He was addressing the truth. When they woke Jesus, these disciples said, we are perishing. In other words, we're dying, Jesus, and you're going to die too unless you do something. Don't you realize we followed you, we got into the boat, now there's a storm, save us because we are dying. Not we will die, we might die, we are dying, we are perishing. And I think what happens here is this betrays a lack of understanding of who Jesus really is. Jesus, as the Son of God, did not take on flesh to die in a sea storm. Jesus did not take on flesh to die before Golgotha. And there is, n- there is nothing that's going to keep him from the cross. Not one thing will make him die before his time that God had appointed for him to die on the cross. These men are so fearful that they are dying that they fail to see that Jesus is the Son of God. They fail to see that Jesus is the Son of Man and that the one that is in the boat, who is in the boat with them is the one who has the power to calm the sea. The sea, the waves, the wind will not overcome him. He will overcome the sea and then eventually he will overcome death itself. Not even death will prove strong enough to hold him down. And it's only after Jesus stands up and calms the wind and calms the waves that they begin to understand they haven't quite gotten the point of who he is. They themselves say, what sort of man is this that the winds and the sea obey him? Well, what sort of man was he? What sort of man was this? Well, he was the sort of man who held the power of the creator. He's the creator in flesh. He does what the God of our salvation in Psalm 65 verses 5 through 6 does. Here's what it says. By awesome deeds, this is speaking of Yahweh, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas and the roaring of their waves, the tumult tumult of the peoples. He has the power of Yahweh. He has the power of Yahweh described in Psalm 89.9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. That's Jesus. This is who we have in this boat with his disciples. I think it's, it's interesting when you begin to read the similarities between this passage in Matthew 8 and the words of Psalm 107, 23 through 30, just listen to this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths, Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were out of their at their wits' ends. Now, I just I just want to point out something in the Psalm so far. We're not done reading it just yet, but so far in Psalm 107, 23 through 30, it's saying that God was sovereign to raise up this storm that that the psalm is talking about. 
that God is the one who raised it up. God is the one that makes the waves go up and down and rock them and send these people into great fear. Let's keep reading. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Now, the point of all these connections is to show that these disciples, though they followed Jesus further than the scribe than the, and further than the other disciple who wanted to stay behind and bury his father, they, like the scribe and that other disciple, failed to see Jesus who he really is. They failed to see Jesus as the true God in flesh. The scribe recognized him as teacher. But the scribe failed to see him as a divine comforter who was worth the abandonment of all other comforts. The other disciple knew that Jesus was worth following someday, but that there were more important things to do right now. And thus he failed to see Jesus as the pearl of great price who is worth selling all that we have now to attain to him and him alone, to to be able to cling to him and him alone. Now, these disciples understood enough to get into the boat. They understood enough to give up comforts and their attachments. But they failed to see that the one in the boat was the one to whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus' rebuke reminds us that discipleship should lead us to the abandonment of our fears and should lead us to trust in Him alone. In the midst of our storms, Do our fears reveal a lack of faith in Him? My friends, you may feel very much in the storm with all these fears of COVID and economic uh, uh, turmoil and what's the state of our nation and what's November going to look like. And, And in those fears, I think we subtly reveal that we haven't quite gotten the point that Jesus is the one who is sovereign over the mounting waves of trial. Jesus is the one to whom the sea and the wind obeys. Do you think our economic security is secure in us? Do you think we're secure because of our economic security? Do you think our politicians can give us life and and give us safety and security? No, they're not sovereign over anything more than you are. Jesus is alone sovereign. Jesus is king. He alone has the power to do whatever he wills. And he has promised that he will not lose one of his people. That means whatever we go through, if this week you begin to show symptoms of COVID, if this week your pantry runs dry, if this week you get an email from your boss saying they don't have the money to pay you anymore, if you this week find out that you are going to die, guess what? Not one of those things will keep you from the safe haven of heaven because Jesus keeps his promises, and he alone is sovereign. My friend, true disciples look at the winds, they look at the waves, they recognize the one who is sovereign over them, and they do not fear. I think for us to be true disciples, we must be willing to abandon our fears. It's easy to fear. It's easy to fear. It's natural to fear. But I think in the moments of our fear, as understandable as that may be, we mustn't become complacent with our fear. We mustn't be willing to placate to our fear. 
we must hand our fears and the storm waters inside of our hearts over to the one who can still them. Over to the great shepherd who can lead us beside still waters and green pastures, even in the midst of a pandemic. We must come to the one who can speak and whisper to our heart, be still and know that Jesus is God. Now, all that's great and good. But I think if we are honest, we will recognize that we are often weak, just as the people in Matthew 8 were weak in their faith. We too have struggled giving up our comforts, and we would have struggled giving. If Jesus were coming to you and saying, you must be willing to give up house, home, security, shelter, all these comforts that you have to follow him, to follow a homeless Messiah, how many of us would naturally have the strong faith to do that? None of us would. How many of us would have actually said, okay, you're right, Jesus, I'm not going to bury my father, I'm going to follow you? Well, none of us would have been strong enough to do that. And I almost guarantee none of us would have had the faith to not be afraid for our lives in that boat while our Savior is sleeping in the bow. So I think having seen what true discipleship requires, that we must abandon comfort, that we must abandon attachments, that we must abandon fears, what do we do when we see that we have fallen short and continue to fall short? Well, first... I think it helps to remember that you and I can abandon nothing without God's grace. We cannot abandon our comforts. We cannot abandon our attachments or our fears unless God enables us to do so by His mercy and by His love and His sustaining hand. So on days that I find, and and, and I've had several days this last week where just left alone to my own thoughts and just in a moment of transparency, fearful of what's to come. I have uh, three kids and a pregnant wife. Uh, that is due uh, in July, and, and just constantly thinking, what's going to happen? What, what if I have to do funerals in the next few weeks? What if I lose some very loved church members? What's going to happen if the church budget goes down? What's going to happen um, if, this, if this is a long-term thing, and, and several people that I love and care for lose their jobs, and I can't do anything about it because I've got to take care of my own family? I've been there, and, 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 and I'm there with you constantly. And when those moments come, the only thing I know how to do is to throw myself fully and completely onto God's grace. Just to, just to bow my knee and to plead with Him, Lord, help my unbelief. You know what? The economy might tank. People might die. I might die. We all might get sick. But at the end of the day, do we ask God to help us cling to His grace so that we can be strong enough to abandon those fears? Those fears are not meant to rule us. God rules us. Christ rules us. Christ is king, not COVID. Christ is king, not the economy. Christ is king, not the president. Christ is king, not the Senate, not the House of Representatives. Christ is king, not you, 
Christ is king, not your career. Christ is king. And when I have the, the, the weakness that keeps me from fully trusting that my king is good and he is sovereign and his promises will be kept true, I just have to close my eyes in those moments and throw myself on the gracious hand of God and say, God, help me. I am struggling to believe. I think God honors a prayer that humbly petitions him for stronger faith. I think God honors it when we come to him as children saying, God, I'm not strong enough to not be afraid. Will you make me strong? Will you give me the strength? Because at that moment, we acknowledge that anything we have, our ability to be able to leave behind comforts, our ability to leave behind attachments, our ability to leave behind fears, only comes by grace. Second, I think it helps to remember that God's plan for us is to grow in faith, not shrink. Not shrink. God doesn't think that God doesn't have it in His plan for any of our faith. So imagine our faith like a plant. He doesn't want any of our faith to wither. He wants our faith to grow and blossom and bloom. And even more, He has given us His Spirit to make that happen. He has given us a spirit who will help our faith to grow. If you are a believer, God's spirit will work and chip you away and sanctify you and make you face your fears and continue to make your faith grow. While God doesn't snuff out the smoldering wick of a person's faith, he does tend to fan that smoldering faith into a flame. He does tend to make it burn hotter. And I think as we move through Matthew, we see the disciples, though they're still kind of stumbling fools at times, just like we are, they tend to progressively understand who Jesus is. So we get from Peter and these disciples in the boat who are fearful that they and the Savior is going to drown, to Peter who's willing to die for the sake of his faith. How does that happen? Well, because of God's Spirit at work in our lives, God has promised that he will Make our faith perfect. Your faith may be weak now. Your, your faith may be so weak that you have the, the most difficult time giving up your freedoms. Your faith may be so weak that you have a difficult time falling asleep. You are afraid. You are fearful. My friends, take heart in the promise that one day your weak and small faith will be made perfect in Jesus. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, third and finally, I think to abandon all else, we have to have the right motivation. We have to have the right motivation. It it would be difficult for us, and few people would leave their comfort, their attachments, or their fears for just anything, right? To to, uh, just, you know, that old commercial that used to say, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Well, we're not going to give up our house for a Klondike bar, Right? But we might, if, if the price were right, we might, if, if the value of the thing we were giving it up for was right. Well, my friends, Jesus is that value. He is of greater worth and of greater value than anything else. And it's by seeing the value that's in him that motivates us to say, sure, leave behind the comforts. Sure, leave behind the attachments. It's when we look at Jesus and see him and all of his beauty and his glory. And when we adore him that we begin to say, I'm not afraid. He takes away our fears. I think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It's a very famous passage. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. But what was it that motivated Paul to count it all as rubbish? It was the surpassing worth of Christ. But it was probably also the fact of what he had said just earlier in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ didn't cling to equality with God, which means that he didn't demand that he had to hold on to the comforts of heaven. He didn't have to hold on to people's reverence of him as God. He didn't need to be treated as God. He didn't cling to those things, though he was God. He emptied himself of all of his divine rights, still had the divine authority, still had the divine identity, but emptied himself of all the divine rights to do what? In order to serve and die for you. He gave up all. He gave up the right hand of the Father. He gave up comfort in heaven. He gave up this close, intimate fellowship with God without any kind of fleshly hindrance whatsoever, without being tired or having to fall asleep or cry. He gave it all up. He counted it all as loss and took on the cross and died so that you could have what he had. My friends, Jesus does not ask us to give up anything that he has not already given up, but given up infinitely more. Jesus gave up infinitely more comfort so that he could bring us to the divine Father who comforts us. He willingly took on the task of being forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we would not be forsaken by the Father. He willingly took on the fearful, dreaded, terrifying cross in order that our fears of death may be dissipated. He died a terrible death, shed his blood. Something, he, he did something far worse than our greatest fears today. He took on a, a cat of nine tails. He took on a crown of thorns and he suffered terribly for us. He was buried, but then three days later, he rose again. Why? So that you could have true comfort. So that you could have the, the, the God who is worth all your clinging. So that you could have the pearl beyond price. So that you could have eternal life. Christ came so that you could have what he had and have it perfectly and have it for all eternity. My friends, I just want to pray for you. I hope you do not feel as if this sermon is meant to make you feel ashamed of your weak faith. It is meant to help inspire you to cling to Jesus who can make your faith stronger. And I just want to pray to that end now as we end our time together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. That's a double-edged sword, Father. God, I know it's cut me this week and I pray that it cuts cuts the hearts of those that are listening, Father, that they will see that their worldly comforts are infinitely small, Father, infinitely temporary, that the true comforter is the one worth clinging to. I pray, Father, that all their earthly attachments will be seen as infinitely not as valuable as Jesus, Father, that they'll be able to see the true value and preciousness of who Jesus is. And, Father, at this moment, as a good father, with Jesus standing at the right hand, mediating for us, and with your Spirit within us, transforming us and changing us and sanctifying us, I pray, Father, that those who are listening, Father, that they will not fear.
help them to have faith in the one and only Son of God. If they don't know Jesus, Father, I pray you break their heart to see that they are, uh, are walking away from the one who's of true value. God, help them, Lord, to put their faith in you. Draw them, Father, and help them cling to him who saves. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Church family, friends, if you're not in our church family, but you're just watching, we want you to know that we are praying for you and we love you and we want to serve you any way we can. If there's anything we can do for you, please just reach out to us and we'd be happy to serve you and let you know and see the love of Christ through us. God bless.